Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode of Working is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash working. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. Welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Joel Meyer, the managing producer of podcasts here at Slate. And for the final installment of this season of the show, we're doing something a little different. It's a little meta. We're calling it the How Does the Host of Working Work edition. If that seems like some kind of zen riddle, you'll get the idea in just a moment. So what's your name and what do you do for a living? My name is David Plotz, and I'm the CEO of a digital media company called Atlas Obscura. And I do know that last year you had a different job. Yes. Until uh, July of 2014, I was the editor-in-chief of Slate. And also, I guess I was the host of this podcast. Uh, In the fall of 2014, I became the CEO of this uh, this marvelous place, Atlas Obscura. Excellent. And I think we should just acknowledge here at the front, we're doing something a little weird. Uh, We're interviewing each other, basically. And this was a listener request. Um, Someone asked Slate if we could do this. And and so we're slightly awkwardly going to interview each other. So would you want to do a quick bit? What is your name and what do you do? 
My name is Adam Davidson, and I do a lot of things. I host the Slate Working Podcast um, until the end of this interview. I uh, write a monthly column for the New York Times Magazine uh, called On Money. Um, I'm writing a book for Knopf, and I'm in a transition, but still have an involvement within Pierre's Planet Money, which I co-founded. And there's a few other things I do, too. But let's get back to you. One thing that's confusing to me is you live in Washington, D.C., but Atlas Obscura is here. You seem to come and go a lot. So today was obviously a New York day. Explain what, what do you do on these New York days? Atlas Obscura is based in Greenpoint. I live in Washington, D.C. with my family. And on Monday mornings, generally, I take an 8 a.m. slow train because we're very cheap. I get the $50 Amtrak. I have two nights in New York. I stay with my in-laws way the hell out in farthest Queens, so far away in such a distant part of Queens. And it gives me a very intense period of work. And you're also this period of working on the train. And then on Thursday and Friday, I'm back at home in Washington and I do work and I'm still in touch with people, but it's it's much less uh, intimate and much more taking care of all the email I haven't answered while I'm in, in New York. Um, it's terrible system. I do not advise this as a thing to do. It was a decision I made um, to when I, I got hired as the CEO by by the founders of Atlas Obscura, Joshua Four uh, and Dylan Thuris. And so we could have moved it from this shack we have in Greenpoint to Washington and done it there. And I just started to think about it and started to envision who I was going to hire and who we were going to connect to. And we needed to hire journalists and we needed to hire technology people and we needed to hire designers and we need to hire business people and the best of those people they're much it's much easier to hire really great people like that in new york and in brooklyn in particular than it is in washington and washington you get a certain washington is such a political city that you can get really great political journalists but people who uh, are interested in the, the kind of atlas obscure ethos around discovery and wonder and exploration are much harder to hire and so i thought i'll just keep it in new york and uh, I'll suffer because of it, but that the entity as a whole will probably benefit. And I think that's, that has been my experience. And my wife is, uh, Hannah Rosen. She's a, she's a, it's hard. There's no doubt we have three kids and it's a pain. I'm away a lot and it's hard on her, but she's been very, um, generous about it. My kids have been very good about it too. So it also allows me when I'm in Washington to be more intent with them. So, before you became CEO, Atlas Obscura was a fascinating, basically, blog, can we call it? And you're trying to build it into something much more grown up, much more of a business. You've raised a lot of money. So now you're in that process, as I understand it. But I don't actually know what it is you do all day. It isn't like other jobs I've had where it's pretty clear what you do all day. Uh, what I have is I have blocks of time where I'm working intently on something. So the first month I was at Atlas Obscura, I was intently focusing on what is Atlas Obscura. So it was a small digital media company. It's it's like a, it's an atlas. It's literally like an atlas of places, one wonderful, unusual places that readers have entered and they've entered photographs and description. But so for the first month, Josh and Dylan and I sort of thought about what is this? What is its purpose? How can it be bigger? Why Why would you need somebody like me? And what, we're, what are we going to do with it? And so that was thinking about that process. And then the three or four months after that, all I did was raise money. And that's a fascinating process. And we could probably talk just about that because it is, 
it is it's very much in the culture right now because of this you know technology obsession but this idea of how do you get people to part with money and it turns out that people don't actually want to give you their money they feel very possessive of their money even though there i am offering them this tremendous opportunity at a, to invest in atlas obscura and my understanding is kind of the richer they are the more demanding they are about why do you want their money and what they get in return for their money that certainly seemed to be true. I don't know if it's a completely inverse relationship, but it's there. There were definitely people who you know t- talking to them, and we're talking about very small sums of money. So Alice Obscure ended up raising two million dollars, which is a lot of money, um, but it was from thirty different people. So the increments were twenty five thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars. The largest investor was two hundred thousand dollars, and there were investors who were thinking about putting in twenty five thousand dollars, and these would be people who had literally billions of dollars. Yet it was it was. Uh, it's intense trying to to get that money out of them. And what was so interesting about the pitch process is that you are dealing with very smart people uh, who, in many cases, in most cases, know significantly more about aspects of your business than you do. And in fact, the reason you're going to them is that they're the kind of people who have had success in your business or kind of an ancillary business. And you're going to them because they, you think, oh, they'll take a bet on this because it seems like something they've done. And so talking to them and having them interrogate you about what it is that Atlas Obscura is and, and can be is, is daunting because they're, they're very, very smart and demanding. Um, and you go, there's this kind of dance. It's very much a kind of intense face-to-face conversation not unlike what we're having now except not quite so close um and uh and the folks are um i would say there was not a single meeting i had where i didn't get a question i hadn't had before so even after nine i think i did 97 pitch meetings uh and even at the 97th there were questions i was getting that i hadn't had in the you know any of the 96 preceding ones and so doing the math in my head, you got about 30% yeses, it sounds like, if you had 97 pitch meetings and 30 investors. Uh, I guess that's right. I hadn't, I, I think I, I hadn't done the math that way. Some, there were a couple of people who, there were actually probably 10 or so investors who invested without ever having to pitch them. It's really more like maybe 20 successful ones out of the 97, uh, which I think is, that's a pretty good rate. Um, but we're early stage and we were not asking people to put in gigantic sums of money. And along the way, I should say that one thing you run into is if you're trying to raise a round, you have to decide, well, how much money are you trying to raise? And then you have to justify that to your investors because they want to know why you were raising that much. Why aren't you raising either twice as much or half as much? So it was one of these things where going out to raise $2.5 million, people were very skeptical. But when we said, oh, we're raising $1.5 million, people actually wanted to come in and because they saw it as a smaller earlier stage opportunity. My, you know, my buddy Alex Bloomberg learned, a, he was very public about his learning process. And I, I know for a fact, because uh, we sat next to each other for many years, and he knew nothing about venture capital or seed rounds or, you know, A rounds or whatever you call them. Did you know any of this? Were you just learning it as you were pitching? I didn't know any of it. And so I learned it as I was pitching. And I learned it actually, it was great that Alex was doing uh, startup, those guys are maybe three months ahead of us. And so I was listening to the show and Alex is also, I, I'm, you know, I'm friendly with him. So I, he and his business partner, Matt, I would call and we shared some information about potential investors and tips and they, they put me in touch with some of their folks. And, um, but no, it was very, it was a, 
so I had no experience as a business person. Uh, I was an editor and I had to manage a budget, but I, and a budget that's bigger actually than the budget I manage now. Manage now. Um, you know, this is like a dream factory. So you're talking to investors and investors, they look at you and they realize, you know, not every business they invest in is, are the founders or the people running it can have every bit of skill. And I think they looked at me and realized, okay, this is a guy who's got a lot. I'm much older than the usual run of people they fund. And I have good experience as a, an editor. And if we're trying to build a great editorial brand, which we are at Atlas Obscura, I'm somebody who's done it and has a lot of credibility and a lot of connections. I think investors said, okay, this guy has, if the main skills that we need for this business to grow are someone who's going to, who's going to a be an adult manager and like make, you know, be a person people want to work for be somebody who has a history of building a successful editorial venture and thus with a strong identity and a reputation for quality. Um, so, so even though I lacked some of the credibility, I think it's, you know, it's a lot of what Alex had. Uh, I, I had these, the, the, the kind of track record around creating the kind of thing that we, that Atlas Obscura needs to create to, to succeed. And so that, that persuaded them. So a couple more points just on fundraising, which I think are interesting. One is like, it's, it's, uh, it's exhausting at a level that I have never experienced exhaustion at work before. So the process of pitching, usually on a, like a very good day for pitching, you might have three meetings, three meetings. Each of those meetings is scheduled for maybe 45 minutes. Um, and they were spread out across the course of the day. So those three meetings collectively took place over six hours. At the end of those six hours, I would feel gutted. And it's, it is utterly exhausting and mentally draining because you are completely on and you have to, you have to be conversational. You have to be a pleasant person, but you have to be mentally acute and you have to think about what it is. Both you have to think about what is Atlas Obscura that I need can explain it, but also what is it about Atlas Obscura that will make this person interested. So, so you, you raise the money and I mean, to me that, that does sound intense, but for me that, I don't know. That sounds exciting, like dreaming up. What could this thing be? Meeting with people, talking about that dream. For me, the part of your job that I just would never want and the part of Alex's job I would never want is the actual doing it, the the coming up with budgets, the hiring people. And I'm assuming, you know, at an early stage, each hire is crucial and maybe they don't all work out and figuring out what kind of meetings are we going to have and how am I going to build a culture? That's the kind of stuff I would find. That's what scares me. After raising the money, so it took several months to raise the money, and and kind of in the late stage when it became clear, oh, we're going to have, we're going to get the money. Then I could start thinking, oh, realistically, how are we going to spend it? And who are, who are we going to hire? And so I started to turn to hiring. So the period after, just as you say, that that every single person is like the person you're going to marry. Every single one of them, because we're hiring, we're we're going to have a staff. But each one of those, I thought intensely about them, and the courtship was incredible. And also, you're as a as a as the CEO, um, as a, as the editor of Slate, I always had a thing that I could show them and say, "This is it. This is great. You already know what this is. It's incredible. Don't you want to be part of this thing, which you already know is great? And look at all these people who've worked here, and look at the incredible careers they've had. And so it's it's a sales job based on reality with atlas obscure it has to, it's a it's an act of imagination it's telling them at the one hand the exciting part is that we are all going to shape this together 
it's that's part of the appeal for somebody because they get to shape the thing. Uh, they get to have a role in deciding what it is going to be. So when I go to Rehan Hermanchi, um, who's my editor in chief, and and sought to hire her for a job, part of it was here's the thing I imagine it's going to be, and wouldn't you like to run that? But part of it is also you can decide what it's going to be. You are a brilliant editor, and you're you have better editorial ideas about this than I do. So what is it that you think you can take and make here? And so that active, you, you, so the active recruitment is much more an active imagination for people than it is for a place that's already thriving and out in the world. And attracts a very different kind of person. It attracts a different kind of person. And the, you know, the thing that I think is exciting and is different is that of course it attracts someone who, who is in a position to take a risk with their life because the people I'm hiring are are not getting paid as well as they would if they went to work at the New York Times or maybe even at NPR. But what they're getting is they're getting part of a small adventure. And that was what was so thrilling for me about going from Slate to Atlas Obscura. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why I left Slate, and I love Slate and still podcast for Slate and have very close to everybody there. And I think it's it is the cat's pajamas of, of web magazines. But the idea of having something which was, which is intimate and which we can be much more the owners of and, and decide and create. And it's funny. I sit there and watch. Um, one of the things I do is I watch our traffic and we have this, we use Google analytics. They're the Google analytics or chart beat, but at Slade, we used to look at chart beat and at any given time at Slade on a decent day, there are, 25,000, 30,000 people on the site at that moment. When you're at Atlas Obscura and you're looking, you know, it's 300, 400. And we get, you know, we got a spike up to 1,000 the other day. And it was like we'd hit the lottery. We won the lottery with 1,000 people on the site at that moment. And, you know, the largest story that we, we've done in Atlas Obscura would be, you know, maybe the second most successful story that Slate would do on a Thursday. So the... I know that we're not reaching as many people. I know it's a smaller venture, but I'm invigorated in a way that I haven't been for years. And not, again, that after having been to Slate, a place that I love and a job that I love, uh, when I left Slate, I think it was unusual. People found it unusual to leave a job where you're the boss. I was at the top. I was, I was, I was running a great magazine. And I, there was nothing wrong with it. I had, we weren't, we were profitable. There was, I wasn't fired. There was nothing, there was no mystery. I just realized one day that I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and people were slightly baffled by that. Some people I think were slightly baffled by like plots has gone to this place that no one's ever heard of. It's literally called Atlas Obscura. Um, but the more time I spend there and the more I start, the more, and anybody who got, anybody who kind of knows me and has taken the time to learn about what Atlas Obscura is, people get it. They get that this, they get that the chance to to raise something from a sproutling, it's been um, as a work pro, as a work change. It's been all that I had hoped it would be. This episode of Working is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. Think about the time, money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. You have to send out invitations, find a time that works for everyone, reserve a conference room, and hope that no one has to work from home at the last minute. 
The solution, meet your clients and coworkers online with Citrix GoToMeeting. It's a smarter way to meet. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever you are. With GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone without travel expenses or the hassle of traffic. Turn on your webcam, and with HD quality, it is like being in the room. And you can share screens to present, review, and get feedback in real time. I want you to sign up for GoToMeeting today. Try it free for 30 days. There's nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. Yeah, and I w- I'll just quickly put a coda, which is, so I was one of the many dozens, hundreds of people you called during your soul-searching days of what should I do next. And my hunch is that was a period of people imposing their own fantasies on you, I would guess, because that's certainly what I did. And yeah, this was not... We'll talk about that. You totally did. You actually, it was funny. Wait, sorry to interrupt you, because that was a funny period. So exactly as you said, and actually, let's talk about this. So I quit this job. And what I did is I literally made a list of hundreds of things that I might want to do. So my Friday Night Lights musical, or people who I would want to work with, or people who are doing things I was envious of. And you're, you were one of the people in the top five. I was like, oh, I love Adam. It would be awesome to work with him. And so I started to call people. And Josh Four, who started Atlas Obscura, who Josh had been an intern of mine, and I always loved and admired him and thought, oh, he'd be great to work with. And so it was very funny talking to you because that was exactly – because I think you were kind of at that same moment of self – examination you'd kind of left planet money you were kind of doing book but you were still trying to figure out what's next and maybe you still are um but it was it was funny because you did have this vision of something you it wasn't quite defined but it was very much like we should do this together um but you didn't it wasn't um and i I came away from that meeting like adam is really passionate about this but i have no idea what it is and I don't think I think it's maybe something he should pursue, not something that I should pursue. Yeah, no, I think I realized that in the conversation where it, first of all, it felt much more concrete. And all it was was I, I, I feel like what one of the things you and I share intellectually is kind of an allergy to kind of partisanship and 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 uh, I don't know ideological posturing or or like rigid thinking. I mean, I think both of us are never more excited than when our mind has changed, but that we're also kind of stubborn and we don't change our mind that easily. So, so it's uh, an exciting tension. And I feel like something we need in our culture right now is um, some models of how to do that, like how to have substantive, you know, grounded uh, discussion that isn't either sharply partisan and you've made your mind up already, but isn't also just airy fairy, Hey, we should all get along. And I felt like you and I together could do that, but it was like, it was one of those things where in my head it was like, yeah, it was, it felt precise and exact. And like, this has to happen. And then as I'm talking to you, I'm like, wait, I have no idea what this is or how that would work. Or that conversation was very clarifying for me though, in a different way, which was, Slate is not a political magazine, but a lot of what it does is politics. And I host the political gab fest at Slate. And I realized as I was talking to you that, in fact, one of the things that I was eager to get away from, because I'm so, it, it just, I had become so frustrated with it, was the day to day of politics and the day to day of having to think about some of these issues where it feels like there's no progress. And, and one of the things I actually genuinely love unreservedly about Atlas Obscura is that it has, it is about, 
discovery, wonder, exploration, amazing places. And it's nonpartisan. It doesn't have anything like that. And so that's come as a great relief to me. And that conversation with you was one of the moments when I realized, you know what, the fact that I'm not as interested in these subjects as I used to be, I should listen to that voice in myself. Well, I feel very embarrassed about that conversation. That was not me at my most articulate, I have to say. But it was me at close to my most passionate somehow. But but it was sh- a bit of a mess. You shouldn't. You should not feel that way. All right, Adam. I have I've talked enough. So it is time to turn from my working life to your working life. Uh, although we should note that we're not in the working life right now because we're at your house and your son is taking a bath upstairs. So we may have scenic noises from your son as we tape this. Yes, he's. He's a knight right now in a knight's uniform, but he's about to take a bath, so we might hear some screaming up there. You have made some of the same kind of switches that that I uh, have made. You had uh, you were the founder of an incredibly successful enterprise in Planet Money, the creator of something that was winning awards, is winning awards, was much lauded, was creating a new kind of journalism. You were at the top of the radio game and you kind of stepped away from that. So first of all, why did you step away? And then what did you step towards? Sure. So I, um, the thing that truly occupied me from 2008 to 2011 was planet money, both thinking of it, you know, coming up with the idea along with Alex Bloomberg and Ellen Weiss, who was my boss at NPR at the time. And then, doing all the things you're doing now, hiring a staff and working with NPR, sometimes easily, sometimes with enormous frustration. You know, it's this large, I mean, I love NPR. It's my home in many ways, but it's a large organization with a lot of rules and we're trying to create something new and it was very challenging. And, um, and it was a single-minded obsessive focus. I mean, it was within a large company, but it was probably had a lot of the startup stuff you're talking about, creating a vision, creating a team, creating a voice. And it was very, very exciting, very engaging. And this was all happening in the middle of the greatest financial crisis of our time. And we were a team covering finance. So it was it was very heady, very exciting, very exhausting, but, but in an, an exhilarating way. Running an organization is really hard. Having an internal startup within a larger bureaucracy is, I don't know if it's harder or easier than a, a startup like, like you're running, um, but it, it, it has its unique challenges, which is you have a big company with lots of people who are really smart, top in their game, and their job is to get morning edition and all things considered on the radio and to do so in a way that has been well-established over decades. And we were doing things like saying, hey, we want to take some of the best reporters who are reporting you know, two or three stories a week, and we want to take them out of the daily mix of reporting and let them work for weeks at a time sometimes on stories. And we want to do this new thing called podcasting, which in 2008 was still sort of an obscure corner. It wasn't the the hot thing it is now and we want to devote as much time and energy and production to podcasting as people do to morning edition and all things considered which was a hard argument because morning edition all things considered have 20 30 million listeners our podcasts in the beginning had tens of thousands of listeners and there were times where i was 
kind of a jerk and yelled at people and fought and screamed and and there were other times that I tried to persuade with PowerPoints and, you know, constant trips to DC from New York to the headquarters of NPR, trying to persuade people to give us more funding, give us more time, give us more resources. And it, it was wonderful and I wouldn't take it back, but it was exhausting. I really, it was tough. And, um, and then I had my son who's taking a bath upstairs right now. And, um, and it, and, I just realized I, I had expended too much. I, 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 w- I was too tired, too frustrated, too, um, you know, because throughout this, I was both sort of, I, I was running Planet Money and as, as a business, sort of an internal business, and I was a reporter reporting all the time. So I, you know, had sort of two demanding full-time jobs. But I, I, I will say from 2011 until last year, I did feel a bit lost. I mean, I, I was sort of floating. I was still employed by NPR and still worked at Planet Money. I also started, um, for the first few years, a weekly column at the New York Times Magazine. Um, and and those are two exhausting jobs. And, and, and writing a column, a weekly column, for the New York Times is really tough. Um, and, and, and I wasn't prepared for the demands that that involved. Somehow at the time it felt like, oh, that'll be more relaxing than running Planet Money. But I had thought that NPR and the New York Times were sort of equal in our culture or something. I, th- I think I thought, well, you know, when I do a story and people don't like it, they let me know, but it's not that big a deal. But there's a level of scrutiny and a level of intensity to the role that anything written in the New York Times plays in our culture that is far beyond anything I was prepared for. So um, the the number of letters and emails and tweets and blog comments and the intensity and the hatred I generated in people was something I'd never experienced before. And it was really, really hard. It was brutal for me. And, And I felt you know, like, hey, I have this giant platform. I have to be a grown-up. I remember when I started, Joe Nocera, who's a columnist of the New York Times, told me, the first six months, all you're doing is building calluses. Like, that's it. You're just being attacked every day, and you just, it just hurts, and it sucks. And part, the worst part of it is some of those attacks are right. Because when you're writing for the New York Times, someone reading it knows the topic better than you do and knows when you've messed up. It closed on a Thursday, which means you're, doing like fact checking and final edits on a Thursday. So it's a very intense day of people at a very high level scrutinizing your work very carefully. And and the fact checking process really is tough. It's intense. I mean, they are going over every statement of fact and they need proof that it's true. And Friday morning, well, what's next week's column? And I have to come up with a topic and I have to turn in a draft on Monday. And so that we can start the whole editing process over again. And, and it was tough. And um, in that first year, I went through, um, there was a period where um, I was particularly attacked. And, and in untrue ways, I, I, some people online said them, some things that were not true about me. But it was very hurtful. And there was like a period of time that it, it was very panicky. I was very upset. And my son at the time was... Um, I guess seven, eight months old, and I, I would wake up early with him and let my wife sleep, and then 
and there was a, a couple weeks there where he would just kind of be sitting on that couch right there. And I would just go online and read all this horrible stuff about myself. And I remember calling you and asking your advice. And, and the advice I wanted was some strategy for attacking the people attacking me or, and you just said, don't you have a kid? Don't you have, don't you want to spend time with your kid? And I was like, yeah, I do. And, and it was really, it was like the best, I, that may be the best advice I've ever had. <laughs> do you remember that? I, I do remember that vaguely. I don't remember um, being quite so, uh, so sage and, and zen about it. That was a very big moment for me. And, and I, um, both the attacks, but your advice, it really, what I tell people about that a lot because it, it sort of made me realize like there, there, there's choices I can make. There are choices I can make about both who I am on the public stage and then also how I'm going to feel about it, how I'm going to let it affect me. So I made one choice, for example, which is I'm just going to confine work to working hours. I'm not going to work on the weekend. I'm not going to be working while I'm with my son in the morning and, and in the evening. And I feel like my columns got better. Like I was working fewer hours, but I was working smarter and all that stuff. So that was a big lesson. But I also realized I don't want to do a weekly column and I don't want to have two jobs that are demanding. Um, I, I want to have enough space to, I don't know, think thoughts. I mean, I, I just, I don't, I don't know that I'm capable of having an exciting, profound thought every week that's worth a column. This episode of Working is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spent for work and what you spent on yourself. It also helps take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, you know how much money to set aside for Uncle Sam and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash working. One question I have is that it sounds like you've gone from, you went from one intense job, which was running Planet Money, which was really two jobs, but one intense job to then two intense jobs, which was being an NPR reporter and writing a New York Times column, to now it feels like you have about five jobs. So in what sense is having five jobs a better working experience? You Because you write a Times column still, you're writing a book, you're advising on films, you are doing this working podcast there are probably like three or four other things that we've haven't mentioned there, which you can mention now. So why is that a, why is that a both a satisfying and also lucrative way to live? So I, I think, um, first of all, I am, I, I do have too much. I do. I, there's too much on my plate. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get some of it off my plate. I, th- I, I think there's, um, my, my planet money role was a total role where there's a team of 10, who need me or who need someone in that position anyway, who's making choices, answering questions, et cetera. And, and, and that was an awful feeling where I just was letting, I was just making 10 people's lives worse all the time. And, um, and that, that was a bad feeling. And then I'm so grateful for the chance to write a weekly column. I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm so grateful to Hugo Lindgren and um, John Kelly and, and the people who, gave me the opportunity to write a weekly column. It's an amazing thing to do. And when I started, they both said, you know, the problem with columns is they just exist forever and columns have a natural life. 
and and I feel like that weekly column had a natural life, which was like two or three years, and then we were done. We we did what we wanted to do. So, um, but but that you know that weekly column, there's like a big chunk of real estate in every week's New York Times magazine that I had to fill. So I now have a bunch of jobs, but and they're important, and I'm I love them, but they're not. They're, they're not they're, and in any given week, the number of people whose lives are worse because of my my inability to do my job. Do you think when you think back of yourself as a boss? So one of the themes that you're getting at is you made you didn't like the I don't know. You didn't. There are all sorts of things you didn't like about it. Planet Money is is un inarguably an incredible creation right so you may have been a terrible boss sort of as yourself but the work was genius how do you balance the fact that you may actually be very good at something that you hated yourself for being good at i mean i look i will i will say what i'm proud of and what i i feel like it it would be silly to deny is i think we created something really special and i think the vision that I had and then I worked with Alex on is, is pretty like, that is pretty close to what happened. I mean, it was definitely like the one time in my life where, you know, I was imagining something that didn't exist and then it did exist. And then, and it existed along the lines I described, which is great. So, so one of the key things we did was we created like such an absurdly amazing dream team. You know, we got David Kestenbaum, Hannah Jaffe Walt, Jacob Goldstein, Caitlin Kenny, Robert Smith, Zoe Chase. So so we assembled this amazing team and it took me a long time to learn how to let them be themselves and and not tell them what to do and not feel like I if it if everything wasn't my idea then it wasn't somehow valid. And so I think Planet Money continues to be just like a, an awesome team approach to storytelling where, where there's a real culture of sharing. And I think I was able to identify that and, and want that, but I wasn't able to build that. I think that all came from Alex. Alex is the one who, and the team themselves, but Alex is the one who really created the conditions that allowed that team to flourish as a team. So that was, I mean, I, I feel like he and I dramatically shifted roles. Um, and and somewhere in that mix, somewhere in those years of working for Planet Money, also working for the New York Times Magazine, I realized that, you know, I have this, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to work in print and radio. I'm very lucky to be able to work at a time when finance and economics are really important. And, and the number of people who tell finance and economic stories in a kind of accessible storytelling way, there's, there's much more demand than there is supply. So, you know, I feel like there's lots of people who know finance and economics better than I do. There's lots of people who are better storytellers than I am. But the space that I occupy of storytelling about finance and economics is more people want it than can do it. And so I, I feel very lucky. And, um, and so I, I, at somewhere along the way, I was like, oh, I'm going to have a project-based life rather than a job-based life where I'm going to do pro- – projects are going to come my way and I'm going to pursue projects and I'll do them for some period of time. And I'm always probably, I think, 
going to be doing a variety of projects. And um, it's it's a little scarier. I mean, I don't know for sure where my income is going to come from in 2016. But it's also, it is a lot of fun. I really like it. Do you think what you're describing is sort of a winner-take-all economy where you are at the very top of economics reporters and radio people and writers who write about the economics and finance and therefore you get to do this or are there lessons in what you're doing for anybody most people have you know they have a job they work at a job that job has relatively defined working hours a single workplace a boss what are the lessons in your your working life that other people can take so yeah, I, I I think both lessons are true. So I don't I don't think I'm at the very top. I mean, Michael Lewis is clearly at the very very top, and he's in a different stratosphere than me. And there are lots of people who are I would say you know income wise or fame wise or whatever are above me. I mean you know Bethany McLean, Jonas Sarah. There's a lot of people who play in this space. It's just there's fewer people than there is demand for. So so that's what's lucky. Although I also will say I'm at a point in my career where at least for now, they, yeah, there, there's lots of opportunities. It's it's very nice. Um, it's it's very. I feel very lucky. It's it's a it it is a good time. And and I think both things are true. I think um, you know I had this obnoxious joke sometimes with some of my friends, like, "Well, there's so few journalism jobs. I grabbed two of them to make sure I was covered." I mean, I I would put it slightly differently. I would say that, um, what. What I've identified that is more broadly applicable is, and and this was conscious. I mean, I, I was aware of this. Like my writing my book about the future of the economy, this was on my mind. That um, we're probably moving more towards a project-based economy than a job-based economy, where rather than sort of long-term, open-ended commitments, you're more you have discrete commitments. And there's a bunch of things that. Um, happen in those economies. So you do need to have some base level of skill and you need to be able to prove that skill. But you also, reputation turns out to matter a lot. So, um, you know, being in my mid-40s, having done this for a while, having, you know, amassed a body of work, that, that um, and, and I think that, that, that helps a lot. Um, have, you know, and having good relations with lots and lots of different people helps a lot. Um, Enjoying the chaos is also helps a lot. I mean, I think having a comfort level with uncertainty helps a lot. So um, my career now is a good lesson or an example of, of that 20% that, that, you know, and, and having some technical skills. So like basically in my case, knowing how to do radio, knowing enough about economics and finance, um, knowing how to write a column, knowing how to be on deadline, how to, how to, um, and then also that kind of ability to switch gears very quickly. I think those that bundle of skills strike me as that's going to be valuable. People who have that bundle of skills are going to be are going to do fairly well. And and I, I don't know how many people have you know have that bundle of skills. I mean, I, my I sort of put it at twenty percent based on some economic research I've read and some thoughts I have. I don't know if it's thirty percent or ten percent, but I don't think it's a hundred percent. I don't even think it's fifty percent of Americans. Uh, Adam, so you, you've talked in very broad, grand strokes about the whole economy, but you haven't actually said what you do all day. So, 
what is it that you actually do on a given day? So I, um, I wake up often at 5.30 or 6. I come down here to the couch, get a big cup of coffee. I try and get like way over caffeinated. And then I write. And I find the first hour or two, I'm more productive than the next eight. Um, so I try and like ride that early morning caffeine high as, as hard as I can. Um, I'm, I, I'm a very uh, distractible writer. So I'm I think if if you filmed me writing, I, you know, it, it, I'm on Twitter and email and random websites as often as I'm typing. But somehow, at the end of those two hours, um, I've written. Each one is exactly the same, which is I start it feeling like a total idiot moron who doesn't know what he's doing. I have to somehow get through a first draft that's just awful. And each week or each month or each time, I learn all over again how hard that is and the one advantage of middle age is I'm now a little more comfortable with the fact that a few days a week, I think I'm a total horrible idiot. And so I try and get a pretty bad draft done. And then I try and get a better draft done. And then I send that better draft, but I'm still embarrassed. And I think every single time I email a draft to an editor, it has lots of apologies about how terrible my work is. This is how I work. This is how, I, that's how, ex- uh, when I was writing daylight, that's exactly how I worked. But anyway, go on. Exactly. Yeah. And then I find I'm, I'm a very, I like the collaboration. I love being edited. I have a great editor now, Bill Wasik, my previous editor at the times with John Kelly, great, amazing, greatest editor. I, you know, Alex Bloomberg has been my editor for years Ira Glass is, you know, the world's great editor. Um, and and they make me better. They, they challenge me. They ask questions. They um, And so that helps shape. Like right now, I turned in a draft. I was really embarrassed about it today. Bill sent me some notes, said, organize it this way. You should take the stuff that you have at the end, put it at the beginning, take the stuff from the top middle, put it at the end middle. And I was like, yes, that's right. That's brilliant. Okay, good. And so tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up. Five thirty or six, come down here and write. What do you do after that first two hours? So, what do you do starting at eight a.m. when those two hours are done? So, what literally happens between eight a.m. and six? So, I have a co-working, uh, like one of these big co-working spaces in Brooklyn. I go there and I'm researching future articles. I'm hacking away at stuff. I mean, somehow in the morning, the writing is feels like. I can approach like my soul is writing on the page or something. The rest of the day, it's just work. I'm just like forcing words onto the page, for, forcing sentences out. And and this whole thing, I think every writer feels this way or a lot, do journalists, of, of um, that research, like you kind of can always research and you're all, I'm always like, there's the thing I'm writing right now that I need specific things on and then I'm kind of, drawing string on a whole bunch of other ideas and I'm making phone calls. Usually the thing I'm most excited about is not the thing I'm working on right now. So I might waste a couple hours interviewing people about um, today it's yeast and mold. And uh, I don't, anyway, so yeah, the rest of the day is a slog. It's tough. Like I'm fighting with the keyboard and fighting with the screen and looking for, you know, looking for inspiration. It, it's tough. Those first two hours are definitely the, the key. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Working, which is our season finale. Uh, In this episode, you've learned a lot about the two people who have hosted the show so far. And if you're hungry for more, you can read Adam Davidson's column on money in the New York Times magazine. And David Plotz, of course, hosts Slate's Political Gab Fest each week. If you are not yet a listener, you can subscribe to it on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And find out more about Atlas Obscura at atlasobscura.com. So new episodes of Working are coming soon, by the way. Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner, is going to host a special episode that we plan to post on June 8th. More details about that later. Then we'll have a new season with a new host this summer. So make sure you're subscribed to Working so that you can get all the new episodes when they come out. Uh, A very special thanks to our producer, Alexis Diao. Alexis, thanks for all your hard work this season. I'm the managing producer of the show, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. On behalf of our hosts, Adam Davidson and David Plotz, thanks for listening to Working. I'm Joel Meyer. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.